This is WMNF Tampa, and this is Background Briefing. Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with revelations in the New York Times that the Trump Justice Department under Sessions, then Barr, secretly subpoenaed iPhone records of Trump critics Congressman Schiff and Swalwell, their staff on the House Intelligence Committee and members of their families, including a minor. Joining us is Ellie Honig, a former assistant United States attorney who spent eight years with the Southern District of New York and is now a legal analyst at CNN, where his latest article is, Bill Barr's Despicable Conduct is Now on Full Display. The author of the new book out soon, Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department, we will discuss Trump's use of the DOJ as his own private police force, using the law to undermine his critics in an attempt to discredit anyone investigating his ties to Russia and Putin. We will examine the role of Congressman Devin Nunez, any sidekicks, Cash Patel and Ezra Cohen-Watnick, who were later promoted by Trump to top jobs in the intelligence community and at the Department of Defense. They appear to have set up Swalwell and Schiff, who was the ranking member on the House Intelligence Committee at the time, as the leakers in order to discredit them and distract the focus away from Trump's collusion with Russia. Then we'll examine further the corruption of the Department of Justice under the ruinous regime of Donald Trump, who always wanted his Roy Cohn and found him in Bill Barr. Bill Yeomans, a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School, who served for 26 years in the Department of Justice, including as acting Assistant Attorney General, joins us to assess what can be done with officials inside the DOJ who did Trump's bidding in violation of their own code of conduct, and whether Barr will ever appear before Congress to answer for his destructive role as Trump's chief enabler. Then finally, we'll speak with Frank Clementi, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Americans for Tax Fairness, who commissioned a new poll that found, by a 29-point margin, voters say raising taxes on the wealthy helps the economy. Following recent revelations by ProPublica from IRS leaks that show how the super-rich are richer than ever and pay less taxes than ever, we will discuss how raising taxes to pay for infrastructure is what the real battle with Republicans in the Senate is all about, and we'll also investigate the proposals for surtaxes on the super-rich from Senators Warren and Van Hollen. And joining us now is Ellie Honig, who served as an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York for eight years and as a director of the Division of Criminal Justice at the Office of the Attorney General of the State of New Jersey for five years. He's currently executive director at Rutgers Institute for Secure Communities and a legal analyst for CNN, where his latest article is, Bill Barr's Despicable Conduct is Now on Full Display. And he's the author of the new book out July the 6th, Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ellie Honig. Ian, I, thank you. I'm really happy to be with you. Like you said, my, my book is coming out in a few weeks, and, and the point there was to sort of detail the last two years of Bill Barr's corruption, yet even in the last few weeks, I need to write up about five new chapters for the paperback. 
<laughs> well, this is the the question, though, is, Ellie, will he ever be held to account? We know how difficult it is. A house subpoenas are being ignored. Uh, we just had Don McGann's uh, testimony, what, a couple of years late? Yeah. Uh, more than that, I think. And the Senate Judiciary Committee can't get Barr and Sessions and, I think, more importantly, Rod Rosenstein to testify unless the Republicans sign on. And Senator Grassley, the, the ranking member, says they're not going to do it. So is Bill yep. Barr going to be held to account, at least in the public forum? So th this is one of the calls to action sort of of my book and one of the motivations behind my book. Everyone wants to know what's going to happen to him. I think there's a very broad public consensus that he was corrupt and dishonest as attorney general. And I, I make that case in the book. Let's sort of run through what the possibilities would be for what do we mean by accountability? First of all, is he going to be charged with a crime? No. I mean, you know, there are points where he said things in Congress that I argue are untrue or provably untrue. And it is a crime to lie to Congress. But let's be practical here. Merrick Garland's DOJ is not going to charge uh, William Barr with with false state criminal perjury, false statements to Congress just as a practical matter. It's just not going to happen. Could he lose his law license? That's possible. There have been formal complaints lodged against him in the jurisdictions where he uh, is barred, no pun intended, but where he's licensed to practice law. However, you know, it's uncertain what they will do, and it's uncertain whether he ever intends to practice again. He appears to, he, he's worth tens of millions of dollars from his prior jobs, and he's 70 years old, so it, it's not clear that really has any teeth. There needs to be, and I think you said it exactly right, Ian, public accountability. And I hope that my book is part of that. I think his corruption, the story of his corruption needs to be told. Can he be dragged before Congress? So you're exactly right when it comes to the Senate. Um, they need they need bipartisan support for a subpoena. They're not going to get that. But the House does not need that. And of course, Democrats control the House. And, and let me say this, and I'm critical of, of House Democrats in the book, and I'll be critical. I'm critical of how... House and Senate Democrats, for the most part, because there's plenty of fire and brimstone. We will get accountability. We need answers. And you made you you gave the perfect example, Don McGahn. It took over two years to get Don McGahn to finally testify, not even on camera behind closed doors. Um, and part of that is because Jerry Nadler and the House Judiciary Committee Democrats are so reticent and so hesitant to take meaningful action. And so I hope this time is different. And I hope there's enough public pressure that the House needs to do its job. They need to subpoena Bill Barr. If he fights it, they need to go to court immediately and they need to push for expedited disposition on it. Well, we all remember, at least our political junkies in our audience remember, Senator Kamala Harris in 2019 questioning Barr and, of course, she's now the vice president. And the, her question was, has the president or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation to anyone? Yes or no, please, sir. And we all recall how Barr equivocated and fumbled around and, and yeah. tried to get into semantics about suggested. I mean, he knew exactly what he was doing, avoiding perjury, right? He, he certainly did. And that's such a telling clip. And it's funny because I opened one of the chapters in the book on that very exchange between the now vice president and the then attorney general. You know, look, if the answer was no, nobody at the White House ever asked me to investigate anybody. And I'm sure that would have been the answer for any of the prior several attorneys general of both parties. His answer would just be no. And if the answer was yes, and he thought it was perfectly fine, then his answer would be 
Yeah. So what business is it of yours? However, I think when you watch that clip, the unavoidable conclusion is Bill Barr knows the answer is yes, but he's trying to fudge his way around and he plays dumb and he does oh, what do you mean by suggest? Can you repeat the question? Because he knows that the answer is yes, but he also knows it's such it, it's such a corrupt act to admit that he has been asked by the White House to undertake certain investigations. And I, I think at this point it's you know what. Bill Barr likes to split hairs. And he says, I never spoke to the president about his feelings about Adam Schiff. Okay, maybe that's true. Why would he need to? The president gets up behind a microphone and says, I think Adam Schiff leaked. I mean, you know, Bill Barr, Bill Barr is a, I would say masterful, but I don't think he's all that good at it. But he, he splits hairs and he tries to sort of lawyer everything, um, not particularly well at times. And I think that exchange is a good example. Any human being with a pulse can watch that and go, well, this guy's hiding something. And I think now that we have these new revelations about the efforts to subpoena, uh, and, and by the way, Bill Barr didn't start the effort to subpoena members of Congress that predated him, but he certainly continued it and accelerated it. Um, that's on Barr. And I think he knows it. And again, I'm speaking with Ellie Honig, who served as an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York for eight years and as a director of the Division of Criminal Justice at the Office of the Attorney General of the State of New Jersey for five years. He's currently executive director at Rutgers Institute for Secure Communities and a legal analyst for CNN, where his latest article is Bill Barr's Despicable Conduct is Now on Full Display. And he's the author of a new book out July the 6th, Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. So in your article, you mention how Bill Barr moved a New Jersey-based attorney to the main Justice Department to work on a case related to Representative Adam Schiff of California. So what more can you tell us about that? Yeah, so let me say this. I don't think I don't see any fault on the New Jersey based U.S. attorney or, you know, federal prosecutor who was asked to do this. I mean, the ethic in the Justice Department, if you're a line level prosecutor like this person is and like I was, is if you're called to do something, generally speaking, you do it. What I do think it, 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 it completely disproves is Bill Barr has tried to distance himself from this. He gave an, art, an interview, I think, to Politico where he says, I didn't have anything to do with this. I didn't know anything about this. How could that be? When he tapped a specific prosecutor from a different district and had him come down to work on this case. So if you look at Bill Barr's denial or effort to distance himself, you see it's classic Bill Barr. He's splitting hairs. He's leaving himself wiggle room. He says, I don't I'm not, I don't think I remember that. He also says, like, here's an example. Ian. he says at one point, I never had anything to do with subpoenaing a congressman's records. OK, in his mind. He may be drawing this distinction. Well, we didn't subpoena the records that belong to the congressman. We subpoenaed records that belong to Apple relating to the congressman. So I don't know what he means by that. This is all the more reason he needs to be put under oath and testifying. But I think the fact that he tapped this prosecutor to come to D.C. certainly proves beyond any question Bill Barr was absolutely involved in this. And his effort to run away from it now is really disingenuous and, and I think dishonest. And he's proven himself over and over again to be dishonest. That's me talking, but that's also multiple federal judges have found that he was dishonest or worse. Robert Mueller said so. So the man's got a real credibility problem. But as your article points out, Barr apparently authorized the extraordinary step of seeking yep. to renew a gag order which yep. prevented the recipients of the subpoenas, and in this case Apple, from notifying the subjects of the subpoena. Now, it's quite possible that Apple, who released this information, other shoes could drop with Google and Twitter, right? There may yeah, be... And, and, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. 
I was going to say yes, and it's possible that other shoes could drop within Apple because the reason that we're finding out about these things now is because those gag orders are expiring. And who's to say there aren't more gag orders that will expire next month or three months from now or eight months from now? And so I think the current Justice Department under Merrick Garland has an affirmative obligation not to wait for those orders to expire, but to say, all right, everybody, whole department here. We're going to find what gag orders do we have out right now that relate to this kind of case and then review them and say, is this appropriate or is it not? And if it's not, go back to the court and say, judge, this gag order was put in place under Bill Barr. It's got X months left to run on it. We hereby move to vacate that gag order. We need to notify the companies right now. I think that's something the Justice Department has to do quickly. So let me make a suggestion about where I think the focus should be, Ellie, because Mm -hmm. we know that Trump was tutored by Roy Cohn. And in fact, he said when he was so frustrated with Sessions, where's my Roy Cohn? And he finally got his Roy Cohn in Bill Barr. And Roy Cohn taught Trump how to be proactive and how to displace his guilt onto anybody who might be accusing him and try and shred these people and destroy their reputations. And that's what Trump has been very, very good at. And he, he was railing against Adam Schiff for the longest time. So, but the whole thing began when Devin Nunez was, in, was the chair of the House Intelligence Committee. And we know that Devin Nunez has been completely servile to Trump. And he's been absolutely assiduous in covering up the Trump administration and Trump himself's ties to Russia and the Kremlin. And that's where this whole thing began. And it was Devin Nunez through his two aides, Cash Patel and Ezra Cohen-Watnick, that were putting out all kinds of misinformation about leaks. And we know that there was no leaking from either Congressman Swalwell or Schiff. At the end of the day, they found nothing. So the whole idea, as far as I can tell, was again, the Trump tactic of distraction to just try and destroy the reputations of anybody who may be asking questions about Trump's involvement with Russia, at the same time rewarding people like Roger Stone and Mike Flynn, who were clearly involved in working with the Russians. You make an interesting case there, Um, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, the the mantra of, of Roy Cohn and later adopted by Donald Trump and Roger Stone and others is, Admit nothing, deny everything, launch counterattack, right? And that approach, uh, sort of sad to say, worked for Donald Trump for the most part. And by the way, he has his imitators now. I mean, if you look at the way Rudy Giuliani, Matt Gates, neither of them charged with a crime at this point, but both under very serious criminal investigation by DOJ, look at the way they're approaching their cases. Usually what any person in that situation does is you go into the bunker, you, you remain silent, you work, try to work, your lawyers try to work quietly with, with DOJ and, and get the best outcome they can. What are both of these guys out there? They are out there doing doing a Donald Trump, doing a Roy Cohn. It's all a witch hunt. Everyone's out to get me. The establishment's out to get me. Uh, you know, the prosecutors are out to get me. And, and they are trying to emulate Donald Trump. And I, I think it's, you know, one of the sort of signature approaches of the Donald Trump era. The other thing is this. Donald Trump could not have gotten away with all that he got away with without his enablers, without his followers, without his loyalists who are willing to bend the law and bend norms and bend ethics to protect him. And I put Bill Barr really number one on that list because I think if Bill Barr had not lied to us about the Mueller report 
had not helped Donald Trump try to cover up on the Ukraine scandal, had not jumped into the Flynn and Stone cases, had not helped Donald Trump get rid of the SDNY U.S. attorney and on and on. Um, I don't know that Donald Trump would have survived the end of his presidency politically. So the enablers need to be held accountable. There's been dozens and dozens of Trump books, but I, but I think mine is the first serious book on, on one of the enablers. And I think Bill Barr needs to be held to account. And would you agree then, just in closing, Ellie, that maybe the press should do some scrutiny into into Devin Nunez and Cash Patel and Ezra Cohen-Watnick, all of whom were promoted into incredibly high positions in the intelligence world with the DNI and then later over at the DOD. And there are some rumors to the effect that those two might have been involved in preventing the National Guard from coming to the rescue of the Capitol Police on January the 6th. Yeah, so I guess I'd say this. I mean, I think the media always has uh, an obligation, an opportunity to look into anything that could be true, verified, factual. Prosecutors, you know, you need you need some predication. You need a basis to believe that. Now, there are some facts out there. It'll be it's, it's an interesting decision prosecutors have to make. But this is the process that prosecutors should go through before they initiate an investigation of Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell or, or Devin Nunez or whoever you may have, which is what evidence do we have tying this person to potential criminality? And if you can point to something and build off of that in a reasonable way, then I think you open a criminal investigation. And I don't care who the political party is. And and I think there, there are some red flags out there relating to Devin Nunez. Um, he, you know, remember that they also, a sort of side story of all this is it appears DOJ sort of overstepped its subpoena authority to try to figure out who on Twitter was uh, had this parody account of Devin Nunez, which is not an appropriate use of the subpoena power either. So um, there's a lot there. You know, the current DOJ is going to have to figure out how much of this they dig into. Thus far, Merrick Garland has not shown a lot of willingness or interest into digging into these fights. He seems to want to move past them. I understand that instinct, but I also think that at a certain point, if, if you're dodging every fight, then, then you're just not doing your job as a prosecutor at a certain point. Well, this one's in his face, isn't it, Nelly? I, you know, look, I think Donald Trump's obstruction of justice on Robert Mueller is in his face. I think a lot of things Donald Trump has done and around Donald Trump are in his face. And I don't, you know, I'm not at all um, a believer that Merrick Garland is going to follow through on these things. I think he wants to move on, right or wrong. And, and I think if you look at his actions, picking up the Trump defense on the E. Jean Carroll case, there's no indication whatsoever that Garland is going to meaningfully inve- pick up Mueller's investigation or, or investigate anything to do with Ukraine. So the signs are, are, are showing me that Garland just wants to move on. I disagree with him, but, but that's what I see. Well, Ali Honig, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me in. Well, thanks, Ellie. And again, I've been speaking with Ellie Honick, who served as an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York for eight years and as director of the Division of Criminal Justice at the Office of Attorney General of the State of New Jersey for five years. He's currently executive director at Rutgers Institute for Secure Communities and a legal analyst at CNN, where his latest article is Bill Barr's Despicable Conduct is now on full display. And he's the author of a new book out July the 6th, Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. We're going to take a restation break and we're back examining further the corruption of the Department of Justice under the ruinous regime of Donald Trump, who always wanted his Roy Cohn and found him in Bill Barr.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Bill Yeomans, a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School, who has previously taught constitutional law, civil rights and legislation at American University's Washington College of Law and also served for 26 years in the Department of Justice, serving in a series of management positions, including Acting Assistant Attorney General. He's now a senior fellow at the Alliance for Justice. Welcome to Background Briefing, Bill Yeomans. Thank you, Ian. It's great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Bill, and your former employer and where you spent 26 years in the Department of Justice is really under a lot of scrutiny at the moment, and it's pretty damaging to think that the Justice Department has been so politicized under Trump that it's so clear that both Sessions and, in particular, Barr the attorney generals, essentially rewarded Trump's friends and punished his enemies, and they used the power of the Justice Department to do that. Uh, yeah, I think there's no question about that at this point. Uh, the, <laughs> the evidence is clear. We have, we have numerous examples, you know, including uh, dismissing, dismissing the charges against Michael Flynn and intervening Roger Stone's uh, sentencing and... And now the the latest uh, news about uh, the leaks investigations, uh, it's clear that uh, Donald Trump's Justice Department pursued his desire that the Justice Department do uh, whatever was necessary to support his political interests. Uh, and it's obviously enormously damaging to the institution, and it uh, places a tremendous burden on uh, the Biden administration, on Merrick Garland, to rebuild the institution and shine the image a bit. And it can only do that through increased transparency and the hard work of driving politics out of the building and adhering to the rule of law. Well, but does that mean driving the people that cooperated with Trump, the professionals, the... Uh... Uh yeah, I think, well, I think, first of all, I mean, to back up a little bit on the, on the leaks investigations, you know, there's still so much that we don't know. You know, we... We, we don't even actually know who authorized uh, the subpoenas, uh, either to the, to the press or um, to, to um, uh, members of Congress and their staffs. And, uh, you know, so we have, we have a lot of stuff to learn before we can start discussing specific remedies. But uh, it, it seems to me it really is incumbent on the Department of Justice before coming about this. And, of course, um, you know, Congress wants to investigate, but uh, they have obvious institutional difficulties in being able to do that. But it does seem to me that uh, there, there, I mean, there, there is, as I said, this fundamental question about how all of this happened, what the procedures are. So, you know, the Department of Justice has very specific guidelines uh, that need to be followed before a subpoena can be issued to uh, in, uh, a member of the press. And, um, you know, uh, it's uh, totally unclear whether those guidelines were followed in this case. And uh, if so, who signed off? But the attorney general has to sign off. That's what the guidelines say, at least. And Jeff Sessions has said that he didn't do that. So either he's not telling the truth or uh, it is possible that since this was related to the Russia investigation, he was recused. And that Rod Rosenstein... Uh, was uh, the one who uh, ultimately signed off on on these things, but these are these are the kinds of things that we still we just don't know. We need to find out. And as I said, Congress obviously is very you know has, the Democrats in both the House and the Senate have said they're eager to investigate. Uh, Chairman Durbin, the Senate Judiciary Committee, 
uh, came right out and said, yeah, you know, we want to get testimony from, uh, from Barr and from Sessions. Um, but of course, the, the Senate Judiciary Committee rules require that uh, a Republican agree to that, since we have an evenly divided Senate, which produces an equal number of Democrats and Republicans on the committee. The only way to get a subpoena out of the Senate Judiciary Committee is for the ranking minority member to agree or for a majority on the committee to vote uh, uh, in favor of the subpoena. Um, that's just not going to happen, it appears. I mean, Grassley, who's the ranking member, uh, has, minority member, has come out and said that um, uh, he thinks the Justice Department should investigate this. It's enough for the IG to do it. So it, it looks like the Senate Judiciary Committee is not going to be able to get testimony from Barr, Sessions, Rosenstein, and the people who would uh, uh, really shed light on how all of this happened. Um, the House Judiciary Committee uh, can issue subpoenas and, and can move forward. Um, of course, you know, we, we have a, a kind of a painful history of uh, uh, the House trying to subpoena people. Don McCann finally just uh, gave a statement this past week um, after years of uh, being under subpoena. So um, uh, that may happen, but uh, uh, Chairman Nadler has said that he wants to wait and give the Justice Department time, I think, to clean up its own mess, but he said it has to be done very quickly or uh, Congress will step in. So what's happened to DOJ in order to solve these questions is that uh, the Attorney General, through the Deputy Attorney General, has, has asked the Inspector General to do an investigation. Uh, which is great. That should happen. Uh, but, you know, there are problems with inspector general investigations. The first is, again, um, really problematically, um, the inspector general does not have the authority to compel testimony uh, from people who do not currently work for the Department of Justice. So that means that Barr, Sessions, Rosenstein, and all the others who might have been involved who have left the department uh, cannot be forced to talk to the uh, inspector general. Uh, and uh, it is a fairly common practice among people who are who have left the department and are under some kind of suspicion uh, simply to refuse to cooperate. So uh, it's going to be tough for the IG to get the full picture, although he will have access to the electronic records, which might show communications, might show emails. Um, and then the other, of course, big question is uh, who outside the Department of Justice was involved? Was Did the White House communicate with the Department of Justice? Um, you know, we know that Trump was making public statements about um, Schiff and Swalwell and, uh, you know, the need to, to investigate them. In fact, the need to send them to jail. Um, and, and so uh, we, need to, we need to find out uh, if anybody in the White House uh, was involved in, in, in putting pressure on the Department of Justice or whether it was enough that, that Trump was just announcing publicly that they needed to do this. Um, so I, it's a, a long-winded answer, but there, there, there are just, there's so much we don't know, and we have, uh, unfortunately, inadequate uh, institutions to find out what happened here. So at best, it's going to take a while. Uh, at worst, um, we may never know all the details. So... It seems to me, though, that the focus should be on, you know, remember, this started, these subpoenas started under, as you mentioned, under Sessions and likely signed off by Rod Rosenstein. Sessions himself said that there were 27 leak investigations going on. Uh, he said that in, uh, in November of 2017, but then apparently they wound them down. But then when Barr took over, 
bar then wound them back up again. And they went on, by the way, all the way through till November of 2020, where uh, the Justice Department subpoenaed Twitter to find the identity of a user behind a parody account that made fun of Representative Devin Nunez out here in California, who was originally the chair of the House Intelligence Committee at the time that these subpoenas were issued. And honestly, Bill, it seems to me that that's where the investigation should be. We know what Trump's MO is. It goes back to his mentor, Roy Cohn, who taught Trump to be proactive and, in effect, Trump's always projected his guilt onto others and he's gone after his accusers. And we know he was obsessed with trying to stop the investigations into the his ties to Russia and the Kremlin and Putin. And Devin Nunez Cash, and his deputies, Cash Patel and Ezra Cohen-Watnick, they seem to be the ones that were leaking all of this damaging stuff saying that there were leaks from the minority, the Democrats, Adam Schiff and Swalwell. That's what started this whole thing. So at the heart of this whole thing is Trump's attacks on anybody that was investigating his ties to Russia. That's what it's all about. Yeah, I I, I think that's right. Clearly that the, the initiation here seems to be to look into who was leaking information about the Russia investigation. And, um, you know, it, it, it is an example, as you said earlier, of uh, Trump using his uh, trying to use the Department of Justice to uh, attack his enemies and uh, defend his friends. And, uh, you know, this is uh, this is the the kind the response to this um, needs to be twofold, twofold. There, there needs to be an intensive investigation of what happened. Uh, and there needs to be great transparency from the Department of Justice. You know, the Department of Justice can't simply wait for the inve- the Inspector General uh, to spend two years doing an investigation and then then you know come up with some revised guidelines or whatever. Uh, it needs to be much more proactive, and it needs to um, to cooperate with Congress. It needs to cooperate with uh, both the House and the Senate uh, Judiciary Committees uh, to um, develop the full story here. Uh, and it needs basically to come clean. We need to know the full scope of this. Uh, and uh, then the department needs to proactively start uh, responding. And, you know, Garland has already responded in part by saying there would be no more subpoenas for members of the press. Um, but we also need to, you know, to, to come up with some rules on subpoenas for members of Congress and people who are members of a co-equal branch of government. I mean, this is incredibly sensitive and and. and uh, again, a real threat to our democratic system. Um, so I think the burden right now is on the Department of Justice uh, and on Merrick Garland uh, to come forward to be very proactive, uh, to join join hands with uh, the uh, uh, majority in both the House and the Senate, and to get the facts out there, and then to come up with reasoned responses. I think it's really inadequate at this point to sit back and wait for the Inspector General. Uh, and I think that you know, focusing on getting testimony from uh, from Barr and, and, and Sessions is uh, uh, is just going to delay things because we don't we don't really have a good way to do that. Um, so I think the burden right now is on the Department of Justice. Department of Justice. Merrick Garland's charge is to return the department to the rule of law. Uh, this this is where he really needs to take charge and do it. Well, I'm suggesting, uh, Bill, that maybe the press should then focus, not so much the DOJ, but. Mm-hmm. 
but the press should focus on who initiated all this, which is Devin Nunez and his staff. They were the ones that were leaking disinformation. And what Trump was worried about was anybody finding anything out about his ties to Russia. So they set up a, a straw man. They, they set up the idea that leaks were coming mm -hmm. from Swalwell and from Schiff and their staff, and they even subpoenaed a minor member of, of one of their families. And by the way, at the end of the day, they found nothing because there was nothing there. So the whole thing was an attempt again to distract, to shift the focus from Trump's guilt onto others. Isn't that the M.O.? I mean, that's that's what I think is staring us in the face. I, I certainly think it's a possibility. Um, but I, I do think that we're not going to know for sure until we have further investigation. And that investigation, of course, has to come in part from the press. The press has to push hard on this. Um, but, you know, the the people who are sitting on the information right now are people in the Department of Justice. Uh, and so I think it, it, it is really important for the Department of Justice to be as transparent as possible uh, in trying to, to clean up this mess. So what does that mean, though? Does that mean that wouldn't they have to sign off on these subpoenas? And I believe they went to a grand jury as well, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. They, they, have, they would be issued by a grand jury. And so yeah, there, were, there were obviously a, a fair number of people in the Department of Justice working on these subpoenas. You know, I think it, at the lowest level, there were people who, you know, who were doing, take, undertaking activities that were within the uh, sphere of their responsibilities. But as soon as it got... Uh, to a higher level as soon as they got to a political level in the Department of Justice. Uh, that's where uh, accountability has to attach. Um, I, I don't think that this is uh, should be a warrant to start culling through the, the ranks of career Department of Justice officials and uh, uh, trying to drive, drive people out because they participated in this. But I do think that people at a political level uh, who are actually the ones who make the decisions and who would have given the orders to to start up this process need to be held accountable, need to be identified and then held accountable. And if it turns out, which it seems to be the case, that Barr lied, he lied, remember, in that exchange he had with Kamala Harris, then a senator, now vice president, mm -hmm. where he obviously <laughs> did want to answer the question. He played yeah. dumb. I mean, it was so transparent. But you're, you're just in the last couple of minutes here, you're saying that it's not likely that we're ever going to get any public testimony from Barr or from Sessions. Well, I, you know, I, it, it's hard to see who has the power to compel it, uh, except for the House Judiciary Committee eventually could. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, as we've seen, these subpoenas over um, matters that occurred in the executive branch. Um, can be dragged out, and they will go to court. I'm sure Barr would go to court to contest a subpoena. I'm sure Sessions would as well. Uh, and um, uh, so that can be a long process. Uh, you know, as I said, Don, Don McGahn finally just uh, uh, talked to Congress this past week uh, and, uh, about stuff that uh, uh, he told uh, the Mueller investigators way back when. So uh it's not a, it's not a quick solution i don't think there's any quick way to get um bar and sessions in front of a microphone unless through some miracle they decide to cooperate which i think is highly unlikely so just in closing then uh how does this compare then to the outrages of nixon it seems to me that this is so much worse uh yeah i you know 
<laughs> it's 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 bad. It it, it is certainly comparable. Uh, and uh, uh, it you know again, it's just an egregious example of how uh, the incredible power of the Department of Justice uh, can be distorted for political ends, and why we need to have an independent Department of Justice, why we need an Attorney General who is thoroughly committed uh, to uh, adhering to the rule of law. And this Attorney General has already been under criticism from progressives. They think he's the case of the the woman who claimed to have been raped by Trump that they're siding with Trump on. There had been some criticism of him. And then, of course, he um, made a speech, obviously a previously scheduled speech, on the need for the DOJ to step in against all this voter suppression that's going on and particularly the insanity that's going on in uh, Arizona with this bogus recount from the cyber ninjas. But he didn't mention anything about this boiling story. So um, is he the right guy for the job? Everybody thought he was, uh, but now he's being criticized uh, for being soft on Trump. I think... think, um uh, uh, in all fairness, uh, he needs a, we need a little more time. Um, you know, I, I do know him to be a very, very fair-minded person and uh, very committed to the institutions of the law. I think that um, he's in a difficult spot because w- I think the worst thing he could do now is just start willy-nilly rejecting everything Trump did uh, because then it looks like it's, it's, there are political decisions in the other direction. Uh, in in cases like the Eugene Carroll case, um, I think that was a very difficult call. I'm not sure he made the right call, uh, but I think what he was trying to do was to show that you know there there is a legal basis for this, and we're going to follow the law. Um, you know, the problem with with the, with that case is that um, you know we we traditionally have given uh, what we call Westfall immunity to, to public officials for for their speech and. That usually is, is important, um, but it's tested here because we never imagined someone in the office of the presidency would behave the way that Donald Trump did. Um, so, you know, we have some very bad facts, and the question is whether uh, those bad facts are going to change the law or whether we go back on existing law. And, I, you know, America made a decision, uh, I'm sure, it was a tough one. Um, I, you know, I think he deserves enormous credit for his uh, statement yesterday about voting and the fact that they're going to add 30 attorneys to the voting section of the Civil Rights Division who are really needed, obviously, with what's going on in the states and Republican legislatures. Uh, And, you know, that section has been understaffed ever since 2013 when the Supreme Court uh, gutted the Voting Rights Act and and did away with preclearance. There haven't been enough attorneys to go around and police the the country, and there still won't be, but that's a start. And if Congress is not going to pass voting legislation, which it desperately needs to do, um, it's going to be up to the Department of Justice and others to enforce existing law uh, in a way that uh, we haven't seen before. And I think that was a good start Friday. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Bill Yeomans. Uh, thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Bill Yeomans, who's a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School, who previously taught constitutional law, civil rights and legislation at American University at Washington College of Law, and also served for 26 years in the Department of Justice, serving in a series of management positions, including acting assistant attorney general, and he's now a senior fellow at the Alliance for Justice.
We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing how raising taxes to pay for infrastructure is what the real battle with Republicans in the Senate is all about. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Frank Clementi, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Americans for Tax Fairness. Previously, he was Campaign Manager for the Strength and Social Security Campaign, a coalition of 320 organizations. And he's been a Senior Policy Advisor to the U.S. House Committee on Government Operations. And he commissioned a new poll that finds that by a 29% margin, voters say raising taxes on the wealthy helps the economy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Frank Clementi. Glad to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And among the the many findings in your new poll, I mentioned uh, that by a 29% margin, voters say raising taxes on the wealthy helps the economy. Uh, there were other findings that said over two-thirds of voters support raising taxes on the wealthy and corporations. And amongst independents, this is as high as 68% support for raising taxes on those earning more than 400000 a year. And that by a seven to one ratio, voters prefer funding Biden's economic plan by raising taxes on the wealthy and corporations. Now, that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it, uh, Frank, in all of these negotiations over the infrastructure plan and which Biden sort of given up because they were just stringing him along. The Republicans don't want to raise taxes. That's what it comes down to. They want to actually spend money that's already been allocated in earlier stimulus bills. Well, actually, the the, the money that uh, is is previously allocated, what, what it is is we have a, a trust fund. It's uh, uh, the Highway Trust Fund, and it funds both highways and mass transit, and that generates a certain amount of money every year from the gas taxes that people pay. And, and the Republicans only, you know, so that's worth about $500 billion over the next five years. The Republicans only want to spend a little bit more above that. Uh, so they're claiming credit uh, as as part of their uh, contribution infrastructure money that already will be coming in from all the gas taxes the folks pay. Uh, whereas Biden, he proposed new uh, infrastructure spending and to pay for that new infrastructure spending by taxing corporations uh, at a 28 percent rate, not the very, very low 21 percent rate that uh, Trump and the GOP put in back in 2017. But that's where the real battle is, isn't it? All of this talk about the filibuster and about the infrastructure bill, unless you pass Biden's tax plan, all of those are dead in the water, aren't they? 
That's correct. I mean, the president has been very clear, and we support him very strongly in this, that uh, he wants to pay for it. And he wants to pay for it by having the wealthy and corporations contribute their fair share. Uh, we know they are not doing that now. They are not even coming close to it. Billionaires aren't even paying taxes some years. Uh, corporations aren't paying taxes. Profitable, lucratively profitable corporations are not paying taxes some years. Uh, and so the president says, enough's enough. You know, we're, we got to be done with this. People have to belly up to the bar, uh, pay what they owe. And uh, he's doing two good things at once. He's uh, He wants to uh, make investments that are going to improve people's lives and not just infrastructure investments and roads and bridges and tunnels and mass transit and things like that, but also in the carrying infrastructure to help people take care of, uh, afford to be able to take care of seniors and people with disabilities who need in-home care and things like that. You know, he's, his whole American Families Plan is funded by taxing the wealthy. That is education funding, uh, housing, Affordable Care Act, making those premiums more affordable for people in the middle class, uh, expanding the ch uh, continuing the expanded child tax credit that's going into place this year that's going to lift 40% uh, of kids out of poverty. So all these things, all these great things, all these things that we need and all these things that the public supports in you know, very big numbers, uh, the president wants to pay for them by raising taxes on the wealthy and corporations. And basically, the Republicans just simply say no. We're not going to we're not going to roll back any of the tax cuts we gave to the rich and corporations in 2017, uh, nor will we we'll, nor will we entertain any other new uh, tax increases on, on the wealthy. So it's a it's just a you know, it's these people, their heads buried in the sand on this issue. Republicans. There are a number of proposals out there to raise taxes on the wealthy. Elizabeth Warren's proposed plan it will levy a 2% tax on every dollar of assets over $50 million and a 3% tax on assets over a billion. And you're supporting, I take it, Frank, Van Hollen, the buyer bill, the millionaire surtax, well, we support uh, everybody's uh, proposals. <laughs> right. We're working right. very closely. We work very closely with Senator Warren on our wealth tax. Uh, folks can go to our website at americansfortaxfairness.org. And, uh, and uh, actually, there's a picture there of Senator Warren. And uh, we have a whole web page devoted to her wealth tax. Uh, the uh, We're supporting all the President Biden's proposals. We want him to go further than what he's proposed. But he's proposed really good, strong foundation, very good start. And we think that we've got to get behind that. We've got to get that passed. Uh, this, uh, the bill that you just mentioned, the one by Senator Van Hollen, uh, which was introduced on uh, Thursday, uh, it's called the Millionaire Surtax. We worked very closely with him in crafting this bill. It's a bill that would, um, it's targeted just at the 0.2%. People who make $2 million or more a year. Uh, what it says is that uh, we're going to raise your tax rates on your wages and salaries is going to go up by 10 percentage points and also on your uh, investment income on when you sell your stock, uh, when you sell uh, the office, an office building, you, when you sell your business, uh, the taxes you pay, the capital gains taxes, they would also go up 10 percentage points. Uh, that would uh, raise uh, $635 billion over 10 years, which is 
a huge chunk of money. It's actually, uh, you know, the president, he's proposed raising about $3.6 So it's about a quarter of what the president's proposed raising overall from corporations, from the rich. We could raise a quarter of that just in this millionaire surtax alone. So we like the bill a lot. It's it's uh, It should be an easier bill for, for people to get behind. I'm talking moderate Democrats. Uh, because it doesn't change the tax the structure of the tax system. It simply adds a higher bracket uh, on, uh, on on the tax system for the, those people, literally the richest 0.2% of the population. There's also a, a proposal that was put before the G7 members in Cornwall of a financial transaction tax to be adopted by all G7 members and then proliferated worldwide that would provide at least $50 billion a year of emergency finance to fund vital public works and longer-term investments in developing countries. So there's also a proposal at a global level there as well. But when you mentioned getting Democrats behind it, I mean, the Democrats are behind it, and by and large. The real problem is getting any Republicans behind it. And as I mentioned earlier, Biden cut off these phony negotiations with with Senator Capito, because the Republicans simply won't raise taxes. And as you mentioned, they just want to use the existing funds from the the gas tax, etc. So if you have to go through reconciliation, you can't afford to lose one Democrat. And you've got Manchin, you've got Cinema, and now you've also got Dianne Feinstein out here in California opposes the filibuster. So how do you get around that problem? Well, I actually think that Joe Manchin is going to be more he, – he, he's in favor of taxing the wealthy and taxing corporations. Uh, we've talked to his folks about that, uh, and I've, I've talked to his pollster about that. And he is in favor of, uh, of making them pay uh, more of their fair share. I think the problem with Manchin is going to be a little bit more. Well, the first problem with Manchin is he, um, at least on the infrastructure piece, we're talking hard infrastructure, roads, bridges, rail, that sort of stuff. He really doesn't want to do it. Uh, uh, he wants to do it with Republicans. And I don't know how one solves that. I think that it'll take time. I think it'll take time realizing that you can't, the, the package he's working on with Republicans and other Democrats, there's 10 of them, 10, five, five Republicans, five Democrats, they're working on a package right now. I think once that falls by the wayside, then Manchin comes back into the Democratic fold, doesn't worry about the bipartisanship and moves it forward. He is sympathetic to our agenda on taxes. Uh, I think his concern may be more about how much, uh, how big is the package going to be, how much is going to be spent, and uh, how much of it's going to benefit West Virginia. So I think that's the issue there. Cinema, I think, uh, you know, she's generally, similarly, not a big problem. Uh, she's inclined in our direction on the tax stuff. Uh, she's very inclined on the, sp on the spending side. For some of them, it's really how big is the package going to be. Uh, and we, the, the package, how big the package is going to be is how big, how much they're willing to raise taxes on the rich and corporations, because the president's made it very clear how big the package is going to be. He wants the package paid for, which means, uh, you know, it, uh, it all depends on how much we're willing to raise corporate taxes, how much they're willing to raise uh, taxes on billionaires, things like that. Well, some of these uh, Democrats are in the ultra-wealthy millionaire tax brackets. Mark Warner, uh, Richard Blumenthal, and, of course, Dianne Feinstein. They're among the richest of the uh, U.S. senators. So they would 
personally take a hit. Any polling on how they feel about paying more taxes? <laughs> well, no. Um, we just did a poll, as you know, and uh, but I didn't. It's not a big enough sample of the rich. Although I did see uh, there was a, something that came out just last week uh, on the wealthy and willing to, to to you know pay more in taxes. Uh, the, the the biggest complaint we get from them people like them, let me put it that way, the wealthy, is the changes that the president has proposed on what are called capital gains. And capital gains are uh, when you sell your a business uh, or when you sell the stocks you own uh, or, or the dividends you get from the stocks you own, uh, the income from that, or when you um, uh, you know, uh, you, you sell a, you know, a, a real estate. Uh, you're paying a lower tax rate. Uh, right now, that tax rate is, when you're at the top, the richest, your tax rate is 20%. The tax rate, the top tax rate on wages, on your salary, is 37%. So Jeff Bezos, for instance, I think he gets about $80,000 a year from Amazon um, in salary. Uh, and he's paying you know, a, a relatively low rate at $80,000 on that. Uh, and But most of his income is being generated from investment income, from the selling of stocks and things like that, where he's only paying a 20% rate. So the president, he's proposed to elevate that 20% rate to have it be matched with the wage and salary rate. Why should incomes be treated? Why should the form of the income be treated differently? Uh, and so that's where you have people like Mark Warner, who are rich, or Diane Feinstein, who I think is her husband is rich. They don't, they're looking at, oh, okay, so my t if I'm making most of my money by selling assets, by my stocks and things like my portfolios, stuff like that, I'm only paying a 20% rate. I sure don't want to pay a 37% rate. And that's where you, you get these folks balking at it. Uh, and uh, that's the fight. And that's a big, very important fight. Uh, it, that's what raises 300 plus tr billion dollars in the Biden tax plan. Uh, and that's a lot of money. Uh, and so that's the battle that we're at hand. And it's, it's really why it, it, it comes down to why should we be treating billionaires and millionaires uh, with a special preferential tax break? I call it a, one of the biggest loopholes in the system. Uh, whereas, you know, the regular folks who go to work every day, they're paying at the, at the higher rate. And it comes down to that fairness, simple fairness. And of course, it's not just that the wealthy don't pay their fair share of income tax. They don't pay inheritance taxes at all, or just about negligible compared to the rest of the world. And the Republicans have what introduced about 40 attempts to abolish the estate tax. So that makes You've been listening to Background Briefing. You want to stay tuned for NPR News.